If you have your Bible with you, please open up to Matthew 5. We will be reading from verses 1 through 12. All the reading that I have here will be from the King James. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning, especially if you're visiting with us. We are so glad that you are here. We appreciate getting to see Wesley and his wife. We don't get to see him very often. We're glad him that glad that they are here as well as all of our other uh, visitors that are with us. The Sermon on the Mount serves as the first teaching section that Matthew recorded. With it, he has portrayed Jesus as the ultimate teacher. He has portrayed him as one who is divinely filled with words of wisdom that has authority and what he speaks has eternal consequences. As we begin to look at this chapter of Matthew, we see all of that, all of that bound up in this man. When we study this section of Scripture, though, I think one thing needs to stand out first and foremost in our minds. This is not a section of mere moral precepts. This is not a section of Scripture, as if any of the sections of Scripture would be, of something that is just simply a good idea, if we follow them or not. These are statements that Christ is making that talks about our eternal souls. He instructs us on how to become what we need to become. And as we look at this idea of this precept to the Sermon on the Mount, we see these first 12 verses. These first 12 verses set the stage for what is about to happen. I want us to notice, the Lord gives beatitudes rather than imperatives. The way that he goes about describing that. He could have started out with just sheer and very firm commandments, but sometimes a teaching technique needs to take a different form. He did that on several occasions throughout his life, but what he's doing here is he is setting the stage for what is to come. He's setting the stage for the greatest sermon that we have recorded for us. The Sermon on the Mount. I think as we notice this, we see that from these Beatitudes, the sermon begins to rise to 
the lofty level that exceeds the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. We see that it never leaves, though, the context of grace. Now, He expects some things from us, doesn't He? All these thoughts are high and holy, but they're very practical and doable. He doesn't set a bar for us that cannot be attained. He's never asked us to do anything that is beyond our ability to do those things. I want us to notice that His authoritative teaching in this section of the Bible sets the stage for His final admonishment to His disciples as He ascended. He said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now notice this. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always, even until the end of the world. Amen. He is setting the stage with what is about to happen for what will happen in approximately three and a half years. This morning I want us to give our attention to the first twelve verses of this great Sermon on the Mount. I want us to notice that these twelve verses serve as the preamble to this sermon by His teaching on authentic righteousness and happiness. Let's keep that in our minds. Sometimes there are thoughts of righteousness that go throughout the world and within our culture, but it's not authentic righteousness. There are things in our world today and people in our world today that says this will make you happy, but it doesn't. Jesus is talking about authentic righteousness and happiness that comes along with it. He is setting forth the principles that govern our entrance into the kingdom. He is setting forth principles that relegate, or regulate rather, our conduct in the kingdom. And He is also emphasizing one's influence in the kingdom. Very important statements that he's about to make. And each one has a quality that is necessary and a certain comfort that comes along with it. The blessings. I think his approach to a, to a godly lifestyle is diametrically opposed to our culture today. A culture that is within the world, and we all know that, but a culture that has crept into the Lord's body itself from time to time. The word beatitude comes from the Greek word makarios. That word means happy, fortunate, or blessed, as it is rendered in our version of the Bible, our translation rather. As seen in the beatitudes, happiness is a byproduct of righteousness. True happiness, authentic happiness, is a byproduct of authentic righteousness. And if we're going to have contentment, that will allow us to survive discouraging times, we need that. Paul said this. He said, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. He goes on to say he knew the good and he knew the bad. But he was going to be content because he understood what was down the road. 
He understood that when this life was over, because of authentic righteousness, it would bring authentic happiness. He told Timothy, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. He talks about the physical things that we enjoy in this life, but is that authentic happiness? Can we have authentic happiness when we have nothing but a coconut leaf hut, a dirt floor, and a fire in the middle of the little room? Yes, I've seen it. We need to understand that we can have authentic happiness. As Jesus began to speak these wonderful words of life, I want us to notice the way in which He spoke. The New King James Version says, And when He was seated... The King James says, and when he was set, he sat down. In that culture, that, mean that, that meant that he was about to teach something. It was common for the rabbi to sit and the students to gather around him. Thus, the comment that we hear, sitting at the feet of someone. By doing that, he followed this Jewish custom for teachers. It was said that after Christ finished this Sermon on the Mount, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. When the chief priests had determined that they would arrest Jesus, that they would send someone after him, and they sent the men, yet the men come back, they said, why have you not brought him? They said, never has a man spake such as him. Luke seven forty six. I think what we're, we're listening to this morning is a, is a historic occasion. We have the great rabbi sitting. We have his students realizing that he wanted to teach them something and that he had something to say. And we can learn great things from it. As they came to him, it simply says that he opened his mouth and he taught them saying. The instruction of the Savior was at no time ever embellished. He did not use emotionalism. He did not use the oratorical actions of the day. He did not try to impress with fancy words or speech. He simply taught the truth. And no one has ever done it better than he has. He relied upon the message and the truth of the message. He taught the necessary qualities that we must have if we are going to be in heaven one day. Let's think about that. Let's keep that on our minds as we look at this passage. He is teaching the absolute necessary qualities to have authentic righteousness that comes along, or the byproduct is authentic happiness. That authentic happiness is eternal life in heaven. When he first opened his mouth and he began to speak, I want us to notice, this is our first point, he addressed the inner qualities of man. The inner qualities. The first mentioned is, the poor in spirit. During that time, the Greek philosophers, they said you have to get into contact with yourselves. You have to identify with yourself. You have to understand what makes you happy. What you need to do in this world. Does that sound so much different than today's world? Does that sound so much different from our culture? Whatever makes you happy, do it. If it feels good, do it. If it's not hurting anyone else outside of your sphere of personal space, then go ahead and do it. But that's not what Jesus taught. He said, empty yourselves. Follow me. Don't be self-centered. Don't be self-righteous. Don't be worried about everyone else. 
Empty yourself and follow me. Christ said this, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. I want us to understand this idea of poor. This word poor here means abject poverty. Abject poverty. A beggar who has nothing at all. Of course, we're referring to the spirit. The inner man. Our mental disposition. When, when we become poor in spirit, we come to the knowledge that we need God. I can't make it on my own. I am deficient and I am dependent upon God. As we look down through the history of mankind, we see that in God's followers. Moses, Job, Isaiah, Peter, all the great men that came before understood they needed God. They were poor in spirit. They were not going to be able to do it on their own. Notice the great King Saul. When he started out, he was doing really well. He was not poor in spirit. He came to the understanding that he'd do it on his own and the kingdom was taken from him. Every king of the northern kingdom said, I'm going to do it on my own. I don't need God. Every single one of them. And every single one of them failed. We have to come to the understanding that we cannot do it on our own. Jeremiah understood that, didn't he? Jeremiah said, Lord, I know that it is not in man to guide his own steps. The eunuch clearly knew that he needed help, didn't he? You recall when Philip ran to the eunuch and he said, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless some man guide me? He needed help. He needed someone to help him. And he accepted that help. That's what we have to realize. I want us to notice as we look at these, these blessings, these different characteristics of righteousness that we see actually the plan of salvation within these first 12 verses. I come to the understanding that I have to have God. There's no one that can save me other than Him. Don't we have to have that before we obey the gospel? We have to understand we're dependent upon someone else to deliver me from my sins? Paul taught, he said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The poor in spirit are comforted because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those people that believe they can do it on their own, that they do not need God there, there is no place in heaven for them. That's why the poor in spirit will have heaven. I want us to notice next, the master teacher speaks of those who mourn. Those who mourn. I come to realize I need God. What does that do? That causes godly sorrow, Right? That leads me to repentance. We're seeing the very plan of salvation in these words. I want us to notice also that just like the Christian graces, one characteristic grows exactly right out of the one that, it, that preceded it. You build upon it. You build upon it. The poor in spirit will mourn. Why? They come to realize they've hurt God. They've come to realize they haven't lived like God wants them to live. Now, we don't readily see blessings in mourning, do we? When we think of mourning, we think of hurt, we think of sadness, we think of loss. I want us to understand this word mourning here is the strongest word in the Greek language to indicate grief. 
This is the kind of grief that Jacob felt when he thought his young son Joseph had been killed by wild animals. Genesis 37, 34. Now think about that. That's the grief. Are we hurt so bad that we know we've disobeyed God? Does that hurt us so bad that we would feel like Jacob felt? It represents a broken and a contrite heart, doesn't it? We see the plan of salvation in these words. Notice what David said. He exhibited grief in his confessional psalm, didn't he? He said, Wash me throughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Confession that I have sinned, and I'm going to repent. We see repentance. See, the godly sorrow led to repentance. He goes on to say that a broken and a contrite heart is what God requires from us. We have to be broken down to understand I have hurt God. That ought to break us down. That ought to make us want to do better. The mourning is the product of seeing the shortcomings in our lives and saying, look, I have to do better. I have to live like Christ has asked me to live. Again, Paul called it godly sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. But it's not enough to be sorry. Godly sorrow leadeth one to repentance. It's not repentance. David could have been sorry, but we can read in his words that he did something about it. It led him to repentance. And then, of course, mourning will necessarily bring one to meekness. Blessed are the meek. This quality has been greatly misunderstood over the years. I think when most people hear meek, what they really hear is weak. Someone who is meek, they view as someone who is weak, someone who is timid, spineless, a doormat upon which everyone else walks. Oh, well, he's a Christian or she's a Christian. We can take advantage of them because they're weak. After all, Christ was weak, right? He was, he was murdered by the very people that He claimed to have created. We need to understand what meekness is. God praises people who are meek. Strength under control. Submission. See, that person places himself under God's control. Didn't, God, didn't Christ do that? Christ placed Himself in a, in a position of meekness. He described Himself, He said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty nine through 30 He wasn't weak. He was strong. He said, Father, if Thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Thine be done. Luke twenty two forty two. Do we see the strength in that? Do we see the strength in the man who brought someone out of the grave who had been in there for four days? The decaying process had already started and he brought him back to life. Do we see the strength here in the man that could control nature in every aspect of it? Do we see the strength here in a man who could forgive sin? He said, I don't want to go to the cross, but if that's what it takes, and that's what you want, that's what I will do. Strength. Nails didn't 
keep our Lord on the cross. Strength did. Love did. Meekness is demonstrated in obedience, but it's also demonstrated in our actions toward one another. The meek person will admit that Christ is exactly who He said He was. Do we see the plan of salvation in these words? Paul said, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest also thou be tempted. See, if we are meek, we want to help those around us who are, are in danger of being tempted. Let's help them. Let's restore them. Let's help guide them. We must be meek in, in our approach to people, right? We have to be. We can never approach someone with the attitude, if you don't know a thing, I know it all. That doesn't work for most people, does it? We have to be meek and humble. We have to approach them in such a way that, that they're willing to listen. Paul instructed Timothy in that way. He said, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him as well. So we have to show meekness. Reach out. How are we going to teach someone if we, we show an attitude of arrogance? Christ delivered these beatitudes. He talked about the inner qualities of mankind, but notice as He transitioned to individual achievements. He said, Blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's an individual achievement. That's not something that we can necessarily do as a group. I have to do that myself. I have to have that quality as an individual. I'm hungry and I'm thirsting. Now that's not normally a quality we want to reach out to have, is it? But we can understand the necessity of hunger. We can understand that it tells us we need to eat if we're going to continue life in this physical world, if we're going to have sustenance, if we're going to have nourishment. When we think of a newborn babe, a baby, a brand new baby, we bring her, in my case, bring her home times four. A good appetite is a good sign, isn't it? They're eating, they're wanting to eat, so that makes us happy. What happens if that baby won't eat? And then all of a sudden she begins to lose weight and, and then her health begins to plummet. Well, we take them to the doctor, don't we? What about Christians who obey the gospel and then there's no hunger or thirsting after righteousness? There's no desiring to partake of the sincere milk of the Word. Is that concerning? It ought to be to each of us as individuals. We have to hunger and thirst after righteousness but if we're going to allow that characteristic to grow out of all those other ones that we've mentioned, we better be concerned with our brethren as well. We need to hunger and thirst. No different in the spiritual realm of life. When we realize that there's an emptiness in our life, we ought to want to develop the way Christ wants us to. The, re the reward is the knowledge, right? That comes with with searching the Scripture daily. We remember that, don't we? Acts 17, 11, 
the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they gladly received the Word and they searched the Scriptures daily. They wanted to make sure what the Apostle Paul was preaching to them was exactly what God had said. We need that. Peter said, we've been given all things that pertain unto life and godliness. 2 Peter 1.3 We ought to be hungering and thirsting after that knowledge, learning what God wants us to do. That's part of the plan of salvation, isn't it? I want to know what God wants if I'm going to be able to be pleasing in His sight. What has He commanded? Well, I'll never know unless I'm hungering and thirsting. To hunger and thirst after God's righteousness is counterproductive in our culture today, in most cultures of the past. What do most people want to gain as far as knowledge is concerned? Worldly knowledge. How to get a leg up, or how to get a hand out, right? Or something of that nature. They're not necessarily concerned with what God wants. Paul condemned that mindset, didn't he? Notice what he told the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the preaching of the cross is to them who perish foolishness. It's foolishness. Well, what do you mean I have to say I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God and then get down into a cold baptistry? He said, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. It's the power of God. The world sees it as foolish. It's foolish to seek God's wisdom. But we understand that we need God's wisdom. We need to hunger and thirst after that. And I think there's also a blessing in being merciful. And it's an important facet of the Christian's life. Mercy, mercifulness. I want us to know, mercy is more than pity. Mercy is more than, than having a sympathetic sorrow for someone. Mercy is more than that. It is actively pursuing compassion for someone else. Someone who's feeling hurt or abandoned or whatever the case may be, a brother or a sister who is in need of someone to stand by them and put their arms around them and say, I understand, or maybe I don't understand, but I still love you and I'm here for you. Sometimes we cannot understand certain things. I don't understand what it's like to lose a spouse. I don't know anything about that other than I've seen it in other people's lives. And I can certainly say I'm sorry. I'm hurt for you. What can I do? Well, nothing but just love them. There's nothing we can do. In the Roman letter, Paul said, Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Romans 12, 15. Let's have mercy on people. Let's show our compassion. We have to show our love for our brethren. That we want to connect with them and we want to understand how they feel. We'll put forth the effort. It goes beyond mere words, right? It goes beyond putting, patting someone on the back and say, Boy, I sure hope it gets better. They have to understand, we want to understand where they're coming from. We want to connect with that individual. We want to help them carry their burden. I tell people all the time, people that, members of the Lord's church that we reach out to, I say, look, the brethren want to help. Just tell us what we need to do. Sometimes it's just leave me alone for a little while, right? And that's okay too. But not for long. We still have to remain together. 
The result of being merciful is that we will receive mercy from God. See, we're not only merciful to people in a way that we're connecting with them when they're having a hard time. We have to be merciful when they, when they offend us in some way and then they truly ask us to forgive them. We have to show mercy. We have to do that or we're not going to receive mercy. Paul warned. He said, be not deceived. God is not mocked. He said, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And if we lack mercy, we will not receive any. So we need to be merciful. Another individual characteristic is to be pure in heart. Pure in heart. Oh, so much hinges on this, right? So much. The importance of a pure heart can never, ever be overemphasized. The term heart is used in different ways in the Bible, isn't it? We know that the center of something can be its heart, as in the sea, Exodus 15, verse 8. It can be the physical organ, such as when Absalom was shot into the heart with the darts, 2 Samuel 18, 14. It can refer to the inner man, 1 Peter 3, 4, our eternal part. The Lord is speaking here, of course, of the inner man, or his mind, the seat of emotion who we truly and really are in this life. Notice what we do with our hearts. We reason with our hearts. Mark 2, 8. We think with our hearts. Hebrews 4, verse 12. We understand with our hearts, don't we? We, we believe under righteousness with our hearts. Romans 10, 10. With the mouth, or with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The pure in heart will see God. It is so important to guard our hearts. We're going to see Him in fellowship. John said, Whosoever abideth in Him sinneth not. Whoever sinneth hath not seen Him, neither known Him. 1 John 3, 6. We're going to see Him by faith. By faith. Talking of Moses, He forsook Egypt. Now, how wise was it for someone to say, Moses, are you kidding? Are you serious? You're leaving Egypt? You live in the, in the home of the king. And you're going to leave and you're going to roam around in a desert for 40 years herding sheep? That doesn't make sense. Moses? But see, we're looking for that which is invisible. Our Lord. We're going to see our Lord in the future too, if we have a pure heart. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. 1 John 3, 2. There is no wonder to me when I read David's words that he cried out for a pure heart, a clean heart. Why? Because he wanted to see God. And if we do not have a pure heart, we're not going to see God. That is the truth. And we need to understand that. A pure heart will prevent us from thinking evil of our brethren, won't it? We have to have a pure heart. Paul warned Timothy. He said, And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, 
even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words. Notice this is the those who are not of the pure of heart, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such he said, Withdraw thyself, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Here's something I want us to focus on. One of the things that destroys a pure heart, that term evil surmisings, that's evil suspicion, which is the result of disputes about things that do not matter. Things that do not matter and most of the time are none of our business. It leads to uncharitable insinuations. At one location where I preached, we had a, a Bible study in the morning during the week and I did not always teach that class and, and we had different people that would teach the class and there was one sister there who would go around and insinuate to people that I was lacking in some area because I did not attend the class every time it was in session. She didn't know what my schedule was. She didn't know what I was doing. But she insinuated to people that I was lacking in some area of my spirituality because I was not at the class every single time. Guess how I found that out? She had been to visit one of the other members and passed that little nugget of information on to them. Is that proper? No, that's evil surmising. I was engaged in Bible studies with people. I was visiting people in the hospital. I was in nursing homes. I was doing the Lord's work. As Christ began His sermon on the mount, He talked about the inner qualities every Christian must have. He talked about the individual achievements that must be present. And finally, He addressed the iniquities of the world. Christ demanded that we offer peace and not problems. Peacemakers. Let's be peacemakers. Don't worry if, the, if someone's attending the class or not. We talked a little bit the other day about our, my VBS experience, right? doesn't matter who puts the chicken nuggets together. Let them do it. It's not your business. Right? We can't misunderstand this to mean, though, that we're to bend when it comes to the doctrine of Christ. No, we don't do that. Some people will call us troublemakers because we stand for the truth, but that's okay. Paul said, if it be possible as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. Look, we can't live peaceably with all men. We cannot live peaceably with false teachers. We cannot live peaceably with people who teach something other than what Christ taught. It's not in us to be able to do that. But we do have to live with the wicked of the world. And we need to do it as peaceably as we can or we're not going to be able to bring them to Christ. Many years ago, people were saying that the 20th century would be the century of peace. Boy, they missed it, didn't they? And it doesn't look much better in the 21st century. As divided and destructive as this world is today, when Jesus came into the world, it was even worse. But He learned to live peaceably with people. And when we do that, He will pronounce a blessing upon us. And that can be accomplished through the correct disposition. 
We have to have a love for one another, just like David had for Jonathan, 1 Samuel 19.4. We have to desire peace. We don't have to, if we're desiring trouble, we're looking to be offended. We'll, we'll be offended. We'll be offended, but see, we need to look for peace. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. 1 Peter 3.11. Isn't that the way that God described Job to Satan? Job 1.8. The truth of the matter is, though, that when we try to seek after peace, we'll still be persecuted from time to time. Blessed are they which are persecuted. Now, how in the world can we find a blessing in this? Well, I want us to notice what Peter said in And he says exactly what Christ meant. He said, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. 1 Peter 4, 15-16 Christ didn't enjoy persecution, but He joyed in the fact that He could give Himself so we could live. And that's what we need to do. That is the blessing of persecution, knowing that we are doing what Christ did as well. All the teachings of Jesus can be seen in some form in this wonderful Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. As we look at each quality and we understand each comfort, we have to have each one of these in our lives if we're going to enter into the kingdom. If we're going to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And that's what we want. We have to have these in our lives. As I said, we can see the plan of salvation in the Beatitudes. We see a broken heart. Someone who wants to repent of sins. We see the fact that we know we rely upon Jesus. We're going to confess that He is the Son of God and He is the one who brings life to us. We're going to search out and we're going to hunger and thirst after, after His words and we're going to understand and we're going to learn and accept what His plan of salvation is. Immersion in water for the forgiveness of sins and coming up out of that water, walking in a new life just like Paul said in Romans 6, 3 and 4. Striving to be peacemakers in all the while enduring the persecution because one day we'll be in heaven. If you've done that and you've become unfaithful, Come back to God. Come back to Him. Acknowledge who He is. Acknowledge that repentance is needed. Confess those faults, whether publicly or privately, whatever the case may be, whatever the need is. But come back to Him. If you are subject to this Lord's invitation, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.